Welcome, everyone. This is Ken Hester here for the second edition of what's now called the 500 Words Podcast. So that might change at some point. Um, I'm still trying to come up with a better name. Uh, I got with me today for our second episode all the way from warm St. Paul, Minnesota, one Chris Harrington. Chris is the, you're the Senior Vice President of a business analytics for AEW. Is that is that your official title? Business strategy, but I do the analytics, so that's the same same difference. Okay. So Chris has been working for the company now for at least two years, right? You started, I think, in 2018. So, yeah, three and a half years here. It's been okay. yeah. Because okay. I started in August of 2018 is when I started doing consulting for them. And then January 2019 is I signed my contract technically while I was sitting sitting in a hotel room in Japan. And you work for the Khan family. We know down here the Khan family is the uh the family that owns um the Jacksonville Jaguars, which is a team about 80 miles north of where I'm at right now. And they also own Fulham Soccer, right? Amongst some other things. Um um, around the world. So tell me a little bit, and, and we're not really going to be focusing on wrestling today, but tell me kind of how you, um, I guess, got into wrestling when you were, I guess, a kid. How, how did that get started to ultimately where you're taking a job into the working for AW now? Sure. I I watched wrestling some as a kid. I remember watching superstars uh, in the 80s and was very familiar with like you know, the rock and roll wrestling cartoons and things of that nature. But I, I fell away from it for a while and got back into it in the 90s. And in high school, I was there in the kind of attitude era. Boom was, you know, a big deal in my high school. And it was a chance to watch both Nitro and and watch, watch Raw. And I got really into trying to find other things to explore about wrestling. And when the internet came along, it made it much more easy to find data sets about old wrestling, to find people to talk about wrestling with, which is how you and I met, because we were both members of the figure four board back in the day, uh, in probably 2006 or seven, I think, or maybe even earlier it started. I was, I think, one of the first 10 subscribers to it. I actually got into way back in the day because i had um a, what i guess a usenet account um mm. at the penn state server because i was in the honors program they let us have um access to the mainframe and we had the, by far the best computer lab on campus which was private in our dorm and we had you know state-of-the-art max this is around 93 94 so you had state-of-the-art max at the time you know real i, I guess maybe the next iteration after pentiums of pc or ms dos type computers and it was it was a crazy scene because we would have, you know, I guess, I don't know if you remember RSPW, um, sure. Export Pro Wrestling. Yes, yeah, so we did a lot of that. But, you know, it was really, you know, move off of wrestling. When we when we had that access, um, it was really, really neat at the time because we had um, the first Mosaic access, um, <laughs> you know, old Netscape. I remember when the CNN uh, website premiered. And you can imagine, what do you think was the most popular game to play? In the computer lab, circa 1995. I'm going to guess State. Doom or Quake or something would, like that. Yeah, be well. First was Castle Wolfenstein, right? Yeah, and then, yeah. That, then that moved over to Doom. And I'm going to tell you that, other than Magic: The Gathering, you know, I think there was no single activity 
which consumed more hours of several of my classmates at the time. I, I think it's, you know, you hear about video game addicts now, but back yeah. then, man, that was like 4 a.m. It was like high time. And, you know, I, I, I know people that would not, and these are real smart, you know, kids, they wouldn't be going to class. They would yeah, just sit right. around playing. It was kind <laughs> of like that yeah. with Counter-Strike and other things in years later. And now it's Fortnite, I'm sure, is doing it with kids. And yeah, every generation has its has its addiction. It's, it's nuts. So, so you're from Rochester originally, right? Yeah, yeah, from okay. upstate New York, Rochester. There's there's the three Rochesters. There's the Rochester, sure. Maine, Rochester, New York, and Rochester, Minnesota, which causes confusion living in Rochester, living in St. Paul, Minnesota. Everyone thinks that I mean Rochester, Minnesota when I say I'm from Rochester. So, so you went to the University of Rochester, a school which yep. I actually almost went to. And I don't think I've told you, I might have told you this story before, uh, but I got a scholarship actually to go there. And, One of the Bausch and um, Loms? Or? Uh, Bausch and Loms, yeah, because I was actually... Yeah. I actually, even though I turned out to be a very lousy science student in college, I was actually more of a science and math guy when I was in um, high school. And um, I think when I only got a four on the AP calculus test, that might've given me a signal that maybe I'm not <laughs> going to be in the top. And then true story, my first year at Penn State, I took count two because I couldn't, I couldn't uh, get out of it because of my, my, I didn't get a five on the test. And um, I, I, I showed up in the class and I got, you know, my first test and I wasn't really, really just focused on studying much for math at that time. And, you know, calculus was always a little bit of a challenge to me. Got my first test back. I scored a 20, four questions right out of 20. So that was a real wake up call. <laughs> I, I, I managed to come back and at, sneak out of the class with a B minus, but it was, it was a little touch and go at the time. So I, I assume that you were very good at calculus, right? I'm assuming that you were. Uh, I, I did all right. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. funny because Alyssa also went to, my wife right. went to yeah. U of R. She also got a Bausch and Lomb scholarship and right. thought of herself much more of a scientist mm-hmm. before she came. And then she did religion and, and political science, but, right. uh, you know, but yes, I, I did, I, my brothers were very, very good at math. And so mm-hmm. I got to accelerate in math before I um, went to college. And so I did calculus in high school and grad, like finished the high school math a year early. Okay. So when I went to go to college, I actually applied to go in the honors program and start at the second year of the honors program for math, okay. which was a huge mistake because <laughs> it was right. so hard. And I, it was such a huge step up and I did all right. Uh, I was a math major, math and economics was my final degree, but I wish I hadn't tried. Like it was the same sort of thing where I was so good in high school. I just assumed it was going to be as easy in, in college. And so going into the honors program and then choosing to try to skip like the first honors class and go into the second year one right. was just a disaster. So you, you learned, I learned a lot about that time about, you know, the importance of social groups in helping you pass classes. And if you kind of join a group late, it's much harder to kind of find a structure that helps you out. Well, your your wife would probably tell you that was a problem for me in law school in that, you know, I, I went to law school my first year and it was, you know, um, it, it was challenging. Um, but the biggest challenge was I didn't really fall into it. I had friends. I mean, I we, we went out a lot. We hung out a lot, but we weren't really a study group. And the people that did the best, you know, the people that were booking classes and, you know, get, getting, frankly, getting the, you know, the top grades and the best firm jobs out of the first year 
were those that were in the top study groups. Um, and it not saying, you know, not saying that it's um, just because they're in a study group because they're all excellent students, but at the same time, you really need that. And it sounds like I would never think that you would need that with math, but it sounds like oh, in that world, yeah. Really. Oh, so hard. I, yeah. I, I had this one professor and um she was the first woman to get a like a math doctorate from Harvard in years and years. Like she wow. was the only one that got it four years before and four years after. And she was funny because she didn't drive. And her whole gimmick was that you could come and she'd work with you on stuff, but the study group was between 10 and midnight. <laughs> and so it, but yeah, we would have all these groups. We had to have a lot of sessions uh, just because yeah. if, if you do like the apostle math, which is like you start and you do the, this huge book that was like the, the calculus book forever. Mm -hmm. It's just so it's all about deriving theorems and things like that. And it's so difficult and you just need a lot of help. <laughs> and so I just remember spending, but it was really, really, really useful for my career because I always think of my career as not memorizing things, but rather coming up with techniques to solve problems. And that's what math is, is, is techniques to solve problems and then learning counterexamples to those techniques. And that's all I ever did is, is whatever business I went into, I just thought, oh, this is business. I could take data principles and apply it. And then I was successful at that. And so wrestling's the same way, which is it's great to have a passion about wrestling. Right. But for me, it was also about the data of wrestling and trying to find find trends and find sanity across wrestling to be like, hey, is there is there a way to prove that someone is a better wrestler than someone else, even in a predetermined sport? I never knew, because I know that your your Twitter handle is Mookie Ghana. I never knew you actually studied in the country of Ghana. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? Okay. So tell yeah. me a little bit about that. How did you get over there? It seems unique, especially for, for, I guess, a math major or somebody that with your background <laughs> when you were in Rochester. You know, I always had wanted to go to Africa. Even when I was in high school, I had this dream of like, Hey, I'm going to go study in Africa at some point. So I really wanted to choose a school that had a good study abroad program. Like I almost went to Kalamazoo which is not a very fun university, but their claim to fame is like 40% of the students study abroad, which tells you something about the campus because it, everyone's dying to get out of there. Um, but I had the opportunity, the, the, the direction that they had was something in Ghana. So I went to the University of Ghana and it, it, Ghana is a fascinating country because it's the first independent sub-Saharan country. Mm -hmm. It has, you know, the university there is probably 150 years old um, and in Accra. And they have programs in everything. They have everything from, you know, mathematics. And I took quantum physics classes there to zoology and archaeology and, and dance and tree and other things, the language courses, sociology. And so I, I just treated it like another year of school um, where I took math classes. I took physics classes. Uh, I also took you know, language and sociology and other stuff that I needed to do a uh, history of, you know, refugees and things like that. So it was really, really interesting. It was, it was some people go and they really like to be tourists and they love to travel every weekend and go around the country and go on these hair raising adventures. I didn't go on as many crazy adventures as some of my colleagues did. Uh, but I spent a lot of time at the school and I made a lot of friends with the other students that were studying there. And I even made some friends with some of the students at the university. And uh, I, I still keep up a lot of those relationships amazingly uh, years and years later.
I don't think the average American would realize that Ghana on the West Coast, right? I think when they think of Africa, they think of South Africa, they think of, you know, the Yes, and that was the thing is yeah, my, my right. roommate was from Botswana. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Reggie. And Reggie was there on a WHO scholarship, and he became a doctor. And Reggie was from as far away from Botswana to Ghana is almost as far as Ghana to the to New York. And so we used to always talk about how like Ghana was just as foreign for him from Botswana as it was for me in many ways. And he would get really annoyed with some of the, the traits of the Ghanaians. And, and it was very funny to me sometimes because it was just it was very much reinforcing that idea of the non-uniformity of, of all the African countries and all their different um you know, qualities and quirks and food and, and different, different elements. And so it was funny. He lived with me in the international student housing because he was also an international student and we were both there on September 11th, actually. So that was a very different, that was only like three weeks after we had gone to Ghana. So it was very different experience of that entire event and the way it was portrayed and versus when what was happening here in the United States. So it was always a very uh, something that I always felt like it was a different experience I had. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I lived in China for a year through, because of my father's job. Right. And so I think that made me more open to the idea of living in another country mm-hmm. and a little less worried to go abroad. But, you know, it, it's funny. M- women study abroad a lot more than men. Mm-hmm. And when you get to countries like Africa, women study abroad like seven times more than men. So in a group of like 30, you would have like three guys and 27 women studying abroad. And so it was also a really interesting dynamic of not only being this white American being in Africa, but also being one of the few white men that was there among all these other people and seeing the experience, how different it was for me versus the women in the group I was with. And it was just very enlightening to me. And it it taught me a lot about putting up a thicker skin for sure. And also um, just dealing with things differently. The the humor is very different in in terms of, you know, I think I, I learned everybody was very sensitive in the United States and in Ghana, I remember it was very, very, very different just how quickly things changed to the next beat in, in some ways, if that makes any sense. Like it was just like, it was so far away, all the events that were happening that it wasn't quite the same constant sorrow and misery and jingoism and everything else that was happening in the U S for us. I went to school the next day, nothing was canceled, you know? And so it was very different to like experience that in a sense where things did not stop. It was a landmark, but it didn't stop my life the way it stopped for a lot of other people. So you lived in China. How old were you when you lived in China that one year? I was six to seven. So that was okay. 87 to 88. So okay. that was, I was much younger. And you, what do you remember about that? If anything, that one year? A lot, a lot. Yeah, My parents yeah. took a lot of pictures. I remember, you know, again, being the other, being the foreigner in, right. in that we lived in Xiamen, which was a city that has had people visiting it for hundreds of years, but didn't really have a big Western infrastructure. And mm-hmm. I just went back to China in 2019 um, as part of my AEW duties. And I only went to Shanghai, but I was just blown away that this could be the same country that, you know, when I was six, seven years old, it was open air markets and horse tails and, and just, you know, people defecating in the street and other things. There's a lot of other things going on, but it was a very 
rural transitioning community and just to think how much they've grown. We didn't see cars when I was there in 87, except for once a month. It was all buses and bikes. And now, you know, it's the biggest car market in the world. It, It just, it blows my mind how things have changed so much there and just how, how, uh, you know, it was, it's just, it's, you, it's fun to travel and go abroad. I know you do that a lot, but for me, it's also like, as soon as you do it, you, it's a quick reminder of how it's never the way you think it's going to be. Oh, and we could probably spend two hours talking about China. I'd be really interested in hearing some stories about your experiences, especially recently. But what I think people forget about China is that China in even what, 40 years ago, was the equivalent to the U.S. prior to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, and yeah, suddenly, for sure. They went there. They they went through. They're going through still exactly what this country went through in the late 19th century, early 20th century, to the point where you know it. It just the growth was exponential. Now with that though, they have obviously you know they have tremendous growth, but they also have other issues um, yeah. that are going to wonder what, what, whether that's sustainable over a period of time. But, that, but that's a whole other that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching what they're doing for the Olympics, and um, oh yeah, it's, it's incredible. You you have it in Beijing, which isn't I mean the country doesn't there's no snow there um, yeah. apparently it's a very temperate time of the year and it looks like they are going to I, and this happens at a lot of Olympics recently but they're going to apparently just have to pump in all the snow because there is no snow yeah um, and it's gonna, so it's going to be basically like a well they built village. like a bullet train to go to these like mountain regions that are like four hours away that now they can get to in an hour they did all these crazy preparations for the Winter Olympics it's amazing yeah. I mean it, it's just astounding to me. That's one of my secret pastimes. Like sometimes I'll get up early on a Saturday, go on YouTube. You know what I like to watch? I like to watch train videos from Asia, like, you know, China, because I just like watching them go real fast. Like we think the Acela goes fast here. The Acela, yeah. the Acela is like, is like a, you know, a, like a, 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 a wagon compared to, you know, some of these trains out there in China. I mean, I know you've been to Japan. I, I was supposed to go to Japan for the Olympics last year. Um, I was going to say, well, yeah. what's, what's your next yeah. Olympics uh, uh, target? Well, we want to go to Paris. That's the goal. Um, I think that will, you know, I, I think that's going to happen <laughs> at this rate. Um, but yeah, we want to go there because we've been to Paris twice now. Uh, once we just stayed at the Gaulle overnight, but you know, we we love it there and love going to France. So that that's that's where we hope to go. You've been you've been to Paris? No, not no, really. Should, I, I, yeah. I've just been into Gaulle. Oh, yeah, that would well, be a lot of fun. Well, that sounds great. Well, it's fun. The Gaulle's not fun, but but Paris. No, Paris is <laughs> um, all right. Well, okay. So first time I met you, and I wanted to bring this up. What what always you, you had one of the more interesting jobs, and and maybe you can expand on it. But I remember when we first met. We were at a tailgate, I think, in Miami, <laughs> and you were telling me a little bit about what you were currently doing at the time. And and here's how I framed it. I, I emailed this to you. I, I called it supermarket end camp management science. So, and we, we were getting in a conversation that it sounds like you were involved or were, I guess, in the sort of analytics of analyzing how supermarkets are laid out, the design. And that's something that you don't think about, um, but it's store design is crucial um, to a, uh, I guess, a profitability. And I was looking, I look at it down here. We have Publix, which is to me, next to maybe Disney is probably the most powerful and the most, I think the best run company in the state of Florida. Um, and the way that those supermarkets are laid out, they're, they're works of art. And you can just tell when you compare it to a place like say Trader Joe's or some other markets, which are not, you know, they just don't have the sort of 
universal setup, that sort of consistency and that real clear eye toward, you know, how how to lay things out to, to um, turn over product. So is, is that accurate? That's the sort of work you were doing back then, right? Yeah. So I got, uh, I, I got hired by a consulting firm and the consulting firm had a couple different arms, but one of their biggest arms was about uh, supermarket uh, profitability and category management is, is kind of the, the catch-all term. Right. And I knew nothing about mm-hmm. retail shopping uh, prior to this. I, was, I had actually worked in the medical food space, which is almost the opposite. That's contracted things with, you know, hospitals and things like that, tube feeds and all this other stuff. So it was all new to me, but I learned that there's, you know, planograms on every aisle. And then the planograms are going to also have lots of decision-making power in them, be it from, you know, the cheapest stuff, you know, the, 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 the generic version of what you're looking for is probably on the bottom shelf mm-hmm. and eye level is probably going to be the, the one that spent the most money to get on there. And then I learned that all these categories bid for the spots in their planogram and that the category captains in these, these categories, they have to program the planograms for the stores a lot of the time. And they have to include all their competitors in that planogram design. And so it was just this fascinating world of, of basically how all the money flows through is as supermarkets have have dropped in their margin marginal profitability they've turned more and more of their back office operations over to the category captains themselves of the 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 retail goods you know the cpg companies to drive forward how to do the quote unquote best in class all over we didn't work with the publics of the world we worked with the the stores that were failing. So mm-hmm. I worked with the great A and P and all of their shops. Mm-hmm. So that, which they eventually went bankrupt, but they were right. basically close to bankruptcy at the time. But I learned a lot about, you know, every, a good store in an, in the wrong location needs a completely different layout. So it's not even just where do the products go, but you know, if you're in a store that has a huge Hispanic population, you want to have a different set of products than if you're in a, in a very affluent area that maybe is catering a lot more to a different uh, group of consumers. And so just learning about that was really big. And then the next part is about just the trends that were happening. You know, if you remember a couple of years ago, Greek yogurt was enormous. And so the yogurt sections went and they doubled their size everywhere of what they're doing. And now it's all about green, right? So it's all the the plant-based alternatives and it's all the the gluten-free options, things like that. And so we're seeing more and more space going there or the sugar substitute products. So, you know, the, the candy that doesn't really involve sugar, stuff like that. So we're seeing all these transformations and really stores only like to touch their shelves twice a year, three times a year. And it, it, a lot of this has to do with just the sequence of when do they have time to do this kind of crossover. And for me, what was really fun is I got access to all the supermarket data when it came to sales. And so I could look at all the cereals that ever existed and I could rank them and I could look at them and I could find trends and I could go to stores and say things like, hey, why do you not sell combos? Combos are the number 10 package good in this certain category. And then I also learned a lot about the distribution of goods. And part of the distribution of goods is you'll notice there's the chip guys that come into the store and they put the chips in the shelf. 
And so that's DSD, that's direct store delivery. You'll never see the store employees going and putting the chips on the shelves for those certain brands. They hire someone from outside, same with the bread delivery people. But then there's other categories where it's always the store people putting it on shelf. And so there's all these kind of sub, sub, uh, just tiny gradations that you learn about. And then you have to realize, oh, the reason the store is designed this way is to get that. You know, it's funny because we would do a lot about basket affinity. You know, if you buy this, are you going to buy that? If you buy cereal, you're going to buy milk. And then there you have basket builders, things that help you sell more. Like um, there's also like basket killers. We found that like bananas are in everyone's basket. It means nothing when you buy bananas. But then sometimes there's other categories. Like if you buy pasta sauce, you're very likely to have bought pasta. And so you want to make sure that your store is laid out in a way that you can get those affinities quickly. And then there's certain categories of things like marshmallows that nobody knows where to put them. Some people put them in baking goods. Some people put them in candy. Some people even will put them in the cereal aisle. And so you can learn between stores like these some categories where nobody knows what to do with them. But it's a lot of fun to think about things that way or like a basket killer is like paper towels. You put a paper towel thing in your your cart, you're le- you're less likely to buy more because it's taking up so much space. space. So Good thought. <laughs> you know, and so it's it can even be like things that may or may not be true, but store managers would be like, oh, I always put Dove chocolate in the feminine hygiene aisle, you know, things like that, where you, you learn, oh, I guess there might be some kind of logic behind that. But uh, it was just really fun for me to look at all that data and learn. And I think I did, I don't know, like 111 category reviews. So, you know, you do a butter category review and you think, what's there to learn about butter? But then you learn, oh, well, at Easter, there's lamb butter and there's seasonal butter and there's, you know, salted butter, unsalted butter. And so there was always something interesting about it to me. So I really enjoyed doing that, but it's tough to work in a space where, where you're working in stores that are failing because ultimately it's about consumer count. How many people are coming to your stores? And then what are you doing with your advertising schedule? And so I spent a lot of time learning about price elasticity of products and which products have good price elasticities, and which products have no price elasticity. Like um, the example I always give is there was this kind of uh, uh, laundry detergent fabric softener that was for newborn mother, for mothers oh. with newborns. And so it was called Dreft. And it was something where it cost a lot more than normal fabric softener. And so every time they ran a two for one, they would sell exactly twice as much because everyone would stock up on it. Who knows it? But no one would substitute up to it. And and so it taught me a lot about the idea of just the price elasticity of that versus like Coke and Pepsi or something where you run a you run a promo on soda and you sell four times more soda. And I spent a lot of time taking those ideas and saying, what does that mean for wrestling? And that's yeah. where I was able to be like, hey, are wrestling pay-per-views elastic, inelastic? And so I use a lot of those same mm-hmm. concepts still in my my day-to-day job now because I care so much about elasticity of, of consumer demand. It's interesting having going to Publix now um, for you know, my 20 years, 22 years I've been down here, um, how they always have the same products and they're always the same products on rotation every two or three weeks buy one, get one free or two, four, you know, two, four X, buy one, get one free, two, four X. And it's always the same products. They never really yeah. throw anything else. Is there a reason for that? Is there a reason why certain products are always part of those BOGO deals as we put them? Three reasons. Number one yeah. is category managers are lazy. And mm-hmm. so the number one thing they do in the circular meeting every week is they look at what they did a year ago, and then they try to replicate that. 
So a lot of it is it's just it, it, momentum of a year cycle happens over and over again. Number two, the money for those advertisements usually comes from the the products themselves. The store themselves is not getting that money. The, the product themselves is. So, you know, the cereal brand is the one that's putting forward the money for them to be able to drop the price. So part of it is that means the same categories, the same people are giving them money to do that sort of stuff. So that's where a lot of it comes from. And three is it's what's successful. You know, when we see it work, we do it again. When we don't see it work, we try to stop doing it. And there's always going to be these weird quirks like uh, black eyed beans at New Year's Eve. Like there's certain groups of people that will just buy them all out. And then you'll realize, oh, this is a big deal in certain stores at certain times. But um, it, it's hard to kind of uh, reinvent the wheel sometimes in grocery is is what you do learn. Uh, and it's all about just how many people are coming to your store a lot of the time is that if you if you don't have the counts in your store, you see the, the counts beginning to drop, that's when it's almost impossible to take it out of a swing. And so, you know, we used to have to be try to be proud about the fact we took it from 8% decline year over year to 3% decline year over year and count that as a success and try to get our management fee on that, which was a pain in the butt. But, you know, that's, that's the world you live in in grocery. It's a very small margin business. And you talked about the small margin. I guess final question about that, um, current inflationary pressures, right? What is that? What does that mean for the margin? Does that affect their profitability as far as their margins? Are they able to, uh, how does it affect a supermarket right now um, as it related, for instance, to supply chain issues we're seeing? Is that all play into it? And how do they, how do they, um, I guess, how does inflation affect those margins for the day-to-day operation of these companies? That's a good question, Ken. It's probably, (laughs) you know, I was really lucky. I did it during almost the Great Recession period is when I was doing it. So we had very little inflation going on. Right. Uh, So we had a lot more price pressure where we could just play with it. I I mean, I think essentially it comes down to cost of goods, right? So I would would say the cost of goods has gone way up. And so we're just seeing people instantly go in that direction of raising the prices. And then the question is, at what level do you get the interesting substitution effect? You know, people substitute away from the... Uh, the cured ham down to spam once you go above a certain price on on certain products. And so what you see more and more and more is the air in the bag, right? Mm -hmm. Is that most products have started to decide that there's a value that you expect to see and their solution is to give you less in the box in order to continue to give you that value. So sometimes you don't see the inflationary amount until you look at the price per ounce. Because that's yeah. the, the real way that they really try to get you is that would they try to do a packaging redo. But again, you only do that if you think you're going to be in a position where that's going to be replicate over a long period of time, where you know yeah. you don't do that for a three-month price pressure. You do that because you're making a, a whole change to the way that you're going to going to run your plant going forward. It's fascinating. I could talk about this stuff all day. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing, uh, you're one of the more interesting people I know, if not one of the most interesting people I know. Another thing we first talked about um, I first ways I first met you was through your interest in improv comedy. So um, my experience of improv comedy, the first time I ever actually saw an improv show was I went to, uh, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Disney, the old Pleasure Island, which is where uh, downtown Disney is now. And we're, well, downtown Disney was always there. Now it's um, Disney Springs, but they used to have a, you know, improv show um, where they had band of players, you know, cast of players, they would do, you know, five shows a night. And it was a ton of fun. It was, you know, very clean. Um, mm-hmm. But that kind of was really, I, I was really open. And, and I actually yeah. knew the guy that ran that, that oh, really? show. 
yeah, yeah, he was a Minnesota guy who oh. got hired to go down there and run it. And then he came back mm. up to Minnesota years later. But yes, I, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. And, and that's kind of mm. like, that's, that's the gold standard, right? Mm. That's the, you know, Vegas who's lying experience. That's the, you get to do this every day of your life. There's a small group of people that do this for second city or for the groundlings or, or for UCB where they get paid enough to live on doing improv Mm -hmm. by performing it. And that is beautiful. And like, that's really exciting. And, and, it's it's a small like it's like indie wrestling where there's right. you know the the people that have the job at the major fed that do it and then there's the people like me who I did it for 20 years in the back of Mexican restaurants mm-hmm. uh on on you know uh awards dinner nights for companies uh I used to perform at a a uh an equity theater in New York that mm-hmm. had us on at 10:30 at night at the alternative stage once a month but uh, I've, I've pretty much performed in every type of low rent venue you can imagine in, right. in uh, New York or Minnesota. Yeah. Ever, ever consider going to say, I've been to Second City twice. I've seen, we didn't see their main stage shows both times. We saw their second, which were actually, you know, in many ways, you have the, some of the younger people working there. They were a ton of fun. I mean, just packed and they were just, you know, it's the, it, just the level of performance, even off the main stage at Second City was just phenomenal and just funny stuff, cutting edge stuff. And um, I know they offer programs. You can sign up, right? Pay a pay a pay an entrance mm-hmm. fee, right? And basically get a six week. I think a friend of mine did that and go for X number of weeks to, to kind of learn. You ever consider doing something like that? Uh, you know, I was lucky that I got a really good improv education right after right. I finished college. I did it in college. And then uh, this theater wanted to open up their own improv program as a way to try to, to basically get audiences that weren't on oxygen. Mm-hmm. Uh tanks to come to the theater. And so this group called Dad's Garage from Atlanta started to fly up to Rochester and they would teach us in these seminars and they were a successful improv um, a theater in Atlanta. And they basically taught us how do you start doing short form improv theater in, in a professional setting? Right. And I got a world-class education from them over the course of about two years. And that made a huge difference is that I got the chance to perform at a really high level with them and get some really good education. And everywhere you go, they have their own kind of curriculum and their own way of getting up. Uh, Second City is weird just because they focus so heavily on sketch. Yeah. And then improv is also an element of that sketch Mm -hmm. destruction. But I mean, Chicago developed so much of what modern improv is. In Minnesota, it was Dudley Riggs and all these other uh, schools of thought. And then in New York, you have UCB popping up. And then in in California, you have the groundlings. And everywhere you go, there's different approaches. I took a, I, I learned from an approach that's, it's from a guy named Johnstone. And so it's, it's from a book called Impro. And it's a very actor's improv, and it has a lot to do with the narrative qualities of improv versus um, a lot of what you see in the Midwest, especially at like SNL and things is character improv. So I've created this character and they're in a wacky situation. And so uh, when you go from town to town, you actually run into some big conflicts because it's like different wrestling styles, like a brawler versus a technician, because you have totally different approaches to how do you deal with this idea of a scene? Um, And so it took me a very long time when I moved to another town to find a new group of people to perform with uh, right. for that. So, yeah, I've always thought about it. I've taken a lot of classes. I've taken a lot of seminars. But I realized early on when you're handsome and you're charismatic and you're funny, you'll do really, really, really well in this stuff. Right. And when I met those people who were those things, 
I realized how much better they were at this than me. Like I'm a good improviser, but when you meet great improvisers, you're truly in awe. You're like, wow, they are really good, good. And then when you see a great improviser not make it, it really, it almost humbles you. And mm-hmm. I just don't have that, that, um, I just don't have that inner drive that I need that. I am satisfied with doing the shows for 20 people in the back of a restaurant with the, the more you drink, the funnier we are sort of mantra. Like I, I don't need to be on national television. I was never good enough to be the whose line is it anyways type. I was right. good enough to, to entertain a group of people that wanted to be entertained. And that was always the key to me is, is, you know, doing that. And I ran my own troop for years and it's exhausting. You know, it's, it's, it's like being a nonprofit. You're just struggling to get by and pay people five bucks to do a show. You, you bring up a great point. My, my friend, Andrew Goldstein, who I grew up with, who was a writer, who was a writer for WWE back in the mid, he was there for about a year around 2006 and now has had a very successful writing career since writing, being a showrunner for several shows. He always said, um, he's also a huge SNL fan and a, uh, and a former NBC page. And he would always say, you know, there's such a similarity between the comedy world, especially SNL, particularly Lorne uh, Michaels and the world of comedy, right? Or the world of SNL and wrestling, supposedly. The big, the big similarities, the similarities between a, a, like an iconoclastic sort of singular figure like Lorne Michaels compared to Vince McMahon, peas in a pod. And I don't know if you ever read the uh, the James Andrew Miller oral history of SNL book. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love that, that one. That book, I always tweet him. I said, you're always looking for another subject because he wrote a great book on CAA, Creative Arts, mm-hmm. Creative Artists Agency, which is an amazing book. I haven't read the HBO book yet. And he's done the book on ESPN. I like the ESPN uh, one. I yeah. read that. So all those books, I always say, you should do a book on wrestling or WWE. I always think, because when you look at a history yeah. there, and it pro- I mean, because and it has a lot of those same dynamics. That sort of cutthroat. I mean, it literally of, has Dick Ebersol in both. Right, but Dick Ebersol, right? <laughs> and you have that cutthroat, which you see, uh, you know, you know, the history, that sort of singular figure, the cutthroat sort of behind the scenes machinations and competition amongst everybody. Um, so it was an idea. Probably, probably would not be a huge seller compared to the others. But I always thought that would be an interesting. Uh, I always found the the, the the parallels between the comedy world, mm-hmm. the improv comedy world, and, and um, wrestling really, really striking. Um, which leads me to something you posted here. As and I have been an SNL fan. I'm almost uh, SNL is three weeks younger than me uh, premiered, oh. <laughs> I believe in Oct- early October of 1975. So I've been a fan of the show since I started watching it probably right around the time the first Saturday night's made event came on. So probably about, you know, uh, a year, uh, probably about a few months before that. And it said, and it was great. Cause then you could watch the show and then every month you would have wrestling, right. You would have a Saturday night's made event <laughs> and then we'd actually have good matches, right. You wouldn't have like, you know, Hulk Hogan versus Rusty Brooks or something like that. Be great yeah, yeah. Stuff. So, so um, that got me into the show. I've been watching it other than maybe a few years in college during the mid nineties where I, it just, yeah, I fell out. I've probably watched every show since uh, 1998. Okay. So every weekend, so it's appointment television. So I was looking at your sketches draft. Uh, Chris did a SNL sketches draft with some other individuals. Uh, it was like eight people. They, they drafted the best sketches of the last uh, six or seven years. Do you watch the show every week still? I still watch the show every yeah. week. And I've watched I've watched probably for about at least 15 years here. I've been actually yeah. really, really diligent about watching. 
it, this, so what this group is, is it's my group right. of high school buddies. And so we mm-hmm. draft different things. Sometimes it's like NES games. Sometimes it's right. that. The challenge is we don't have nine guys that watch it. We have about three guys, four guys that watch right. it and two guys that occasionally watch it. And then two or three that are vehemently in the old SNL was better than new SNL. It's all crap. Right. Yeah. Uh, bucket. So it was tough to do this sketch. It was a little right. bit of a rib on one of the guys, to be honest, mm-hmm. of just trying to force him to do a long draft in this category. So I think you right. would actually do a, a much better draft than we did. Uh, well, well, I'm going to say this. I was astounded by some of the first picks because they are, I think you hit other than, I don't know, when was this draft done? Because I can tell you what week. the last week, okay, you're missing the best sketch of the year which was a dog head man, which I don't see that listed from the uh, Simi Lou episode where they had the dog head with a Mikey Day. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And the best part of that, the best part of that was that Mikey Day during that entire sketch did not crack, did not do nothing. He stayed. And that was incredible how he did that. Um, But looking at these, I, I have to say the number one pick would probably be my number one pick. Also sitcom reboot. Um, ah. switch, switcheroo, switcheroo, kind of, I mean, that, I, I think I, I thought David as <laughs> pumpkins was kind of the, the number one pick just because yeah. it, it's, it, it grew so quickly of yeah. just something where people saw it. The one that I love that didn't get any love at all mm-hmm. was mafia meeting, which is yeah, the mafia. space pants yes. one with Peter Dinklage, which is just such a bizarre thing. But I, we, when you tally up the hosts, mm-hmm. John Mulaney had five. Yeah. Adam Driver had four. Chance right. the Rapper had three. Will Ferrell had three. And I, I think, you know, for us, this the revelation was how good Adam Driver is yes. as a host. Like he he really has come out of the blue as someone that like really has good comedic chops. One other two you talking about Mulaney. Um, I do think the best written sketch of the last 10 years was the most recent what's that name sketch with Bill Hader. Just a piece of art as far as writing and just comedy timing. I've watched that sketch maybe about 50 times and just <laughs> caught. There's so many nuances in that thing. It's an amazing. Uh, I, I think for me, the, the, yeah. the Kavanaugh cold open, mm-hmm. I've rewatched that it's 14 minutes, which wow. is incredibly long. It, it's probably the longest cold open they've ever done. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I'd be curious if it's funny to people that didn't watch the actual hearing. Because they're yeah. playing off so many little things, but Matt Damon's commitment to the bit is just so good, and then it still has the skewing of all the the political types, and then also just like the random Alyssa Milano giant cardboard head sticking up, where it's it's the low tech meets high tech solutions to things. I I loved all of that. That was always also yeah. one that really got me. I was looking forward to the Will Forte episode this past weekend. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Yeah, I just yeah. did. It was, it, it was, I, he is such a unique um, kind of idiosyncratic performer. Yeah. Um, you know, some of his stuff, I mean, I thought McGruber, as far as a movie, is one of the yeah. more underrated comedic movies of the last, of the, of actually, of the, of the century so far. It's that yeah. funny. Um, and I thought there were some moments there where he really kind of kicked out, like the, the, the one sketch where he was playing the, the this the, the the threesome sketch where he comes and he starts shaking yes, the bed. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was funny stuff. Some of the other stuff, um, you it, know, it's too too yeah. out there. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy 
like one of my favorite sketches that unfortunately is just a little bit outside the range of five years is the uh the mike o'brien sketch with james franco with their monsters and was that a 10 to 1 sketch was that one of one one of those tape because he does those yes it was the weird tape tape one it's really it's like a really fun movie sketch type thing and it reminds and and Michael Bryan used to always have really interesting things. Kyle uh, and Beck Bennett would always do really interesting things. I, mm-hmm. I I like the more alternative comedy. And I think, you know, I think you should leave is such a brilliant, fun sketch show these days. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just one of those things where you can see these are all neat premises and they don't work on SNL. They work in his brain, in Tim's brain on a different show. But uh, I, I, I appreciate kind of what SNL is able to, to hit on its highest notes all the time. Well, here's a question for you. And this kind of ties into wrestling and kind of what you do. All right. So big complaint about SNL, big, contra- big discuss- I won't say controversy, but discussion right now is the size of the cast. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, even I was listening to uh, the new Dana Carvey, uh, David Spade podcast. And they had Chris Rock on. And even Chris Rock was saying, he's like, he's like, man, like, guys they got on it means great they got like 20 they have a cast of oh yeah i remember yeah. the will yeah. forte episode right. i had no idea Alex moffitt yeah. was even there until he yeah. showed up at the end of one sketch i was like oh well i think what they've been doing okay and this is something that you can probably relate to at a wrestling company um where they try it seems like they have pods they almost take pods of cast now that are featured in a specific episode so mm-hmm. you have it you have 22 people there or let's just say 20 let's just say 20 and you'll note that on one specific episode, you'll have maybe eight cast members really getting most of the screen time. Some then are, and there's others that are, I guess, the way filming a movie on a TV show, or they'll have kind of minor appearances. But that seems to be where they're headed now because people don't leave the show. Keenan has been on the show now for more than 20 years. Yeah. Um, Alex, people like, not Alex, well, Alex has been on there for a while, um, but uh, 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 yeah, Kyle's been on the show. Kate McKinnon, yeah. 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 So I don't I don't know if that's something that you can look at tell. from your experience in wrestling and how like because people talk about having, you know, bloated rosters. In oh, WWE yeah. Yeah. Or wherever, you know, that's always something that's brought up. It's it certainly yeah. I think the difference there is it depends on what your end goal is. If your right. end goal is I want to have the best match every week, mm-hmm. you could argue it doesn't matter which group of people I have. If your end goal is I want to make stars. And I want people to buy merchandise of these stars. And then I want to build to a pay-per-view with these stars. Then you have to start prioritizing people because you have to create this like idea that there's momentum. And so it's kind of the question of what is the point of SNL? Is it to skewer the truth and, and bring humor or is it about creating characters that you can spin off into movies? You know, is it about writing for what is going to be popular with the audience or is it writing for what's popular with the host? Because I find a lot of it has to do with, you know, you'll see an old uh, SNL alum come back and then Keenan will be in every ep- every sketch. And you get the point. feeling like they want Keenan with working with, like you see the people that they used to work with, they, they find a way to make sure that they're on there working with them more and more. Versus sometimes yeah. when you have like a crazy host, they will... Yeah. You know, Walter Isaac or something comes in and it's like all all bets are right. off who's going to be in what sketches. Right. And, and that's really interesting to me. Uh, I, I think that they still have a lot of really good, interesting young people that are coming up, um, mm-hmm. even like uh, Sarah Sherman and people yeah. that are like doing weird things. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like it's funny that like Pete Davidson has graduated from being the young cast member who's wacky yeah. to he's now the middle-aged cast member. And then you have a whole yeah. other group of alternative Twitter comics kind of coming on and that, that it's a different generation. Yeah. Pete's, uh, Pete's improved a lot. Um, yes. A friend of mine who follows the show will say though, that, you know, he's always going to have a place in that show. And again, there's like a wrestling analogy there. He might not be the best worker, but he's the star. I mean, he gets yeah. a lot of press and people talk. Everybody knows who he is. because yeah, He's his, like Adam you know, Sandler to me, yeah. which is, is, is like Adam was never very good at characters, but yeah. he was charismatic in a way that people connected. And yes. it doesn't always matter if you like it or don't like it. It's, it's like that it's what they have. I, I do think it's, it makes you wonder what their end goal is. Are, you know, are they are people not being offered developmental deals? Or are they being offered mm-hmm. deals in such a way that they can do both? Like Keenan is producing his own TV show now, yeah. and still staying on the show. And in the old days, it was kind of like you had to do one or the other. I also think my bet is when Lauren retires or leaves or whatever that I think Keenan, along with Seth, I would say Keenan is a good bet. I would say to be the next showrunner, I would say Seth would be up there. But um, you know, this the only reason I, I yeah, I, the only reason I'm not sure that like the longest tenured person, and again, this is from my yeah. wrestling experience. Right, right. I've learned that the guy who's been around the longest doesn't always know how to <laughs> administer the company. Yes, right. He's good at, at other like, but I mean, I've heard that Keenan doesn't even come until dress rehearsal now, and so it's kind of hard to imagine turning the turning the house over to someone who isn't even there for three quarters of the week. Like to me, it seems more like it, like a lot of companies, it will probably end up going to somebody that a lot of people are going to say who, and other mm-hmm. people are going to be like, Oh, you don't realize he's been a segment producer on that show for 15 years and is the right hand man who, who keeps the trains on time. You know, uh, you, you just, you, a lot of times you don't realize some of those behind the scenes people. I mean, Keith Mitchell worked for us at AEW and just retired. Mm-hmm. Keith Mitchell started 1980 working for Fritz von Erich and world-class wrestling. He then went on to work for, uh, like De- he basically joined WCW in 89, did that all the way till 2001. From there, he moved to TNA, did TNA all the way till he worked at AEW, came here. It, it he had 40 years of experience, but you'd be hard pressed to find people outside of wrestling who knew who Keith Mitchell was. And even people yeah. in wrestling didn't really know the name, but anyone who was behind the scenes knew what he produced. And that's how I kind of feel like SNL probably is, is there's probably someone who's a lot less well-known, mm-hmm. but is really the guy that is, is being set up to run, but I'm sure there'll be a figurehead leader too. But I, I agree with like a Seth Myers or someone who maybe has such a passion for the show that they could go on to be a big leader. All right, I have one wrestling question from my friend Rich, who goes. He goes to, and you don't. I don't. You don't have to answer this because it might it might infringe upon some of your uh, uh, business stuff. But so he asked. He goes. He goes to uh, Performance Center every week. He's actually started going for NXT 2.0. He believes that NXT 2.0 has been a pretty good product so far in establishing new talent like Braun, Carmelo Hayes, Cora J, Toxic Attraction. He says it seems like there's rumblings that WWE is unhappy with the ratings and the response. Do you, Chris, if you care to answer this question, or if you even have time, I guess you don't probably have much time to watch NXT as it is, but do you think WWE is going to pull the plug on the whole thing in 2022? Are you prepared to answer that question as an AEW executive? (laughs) Uh, Not as an AEW executive, but just as a wrestling fan. Yeah. 
Uh, I could just say as a wrestling fan, I have no idea. Uh, yeah. I, I, I doubt that they would give up on it, uh, mainly because as long as they have a TV contract to put that show on the air, mm-hmm. WWE doesn't give up on stuff. They, they right. keep 205 Live alive because they get money to, to put that show on the air. And more and more and more, they're interested in the contracts that they've signed rather mm-hmm. than the, uh, the goals that they might set out for themselves. So global localization seems to have gone away for WWE. And but at the same time, all the TV shows that they promised they'd deliver still are being delivered. So I, I don't think there's a reason it would stop. I think that they also just invested such a large amount of stuff in this. Uh, what is it? Name likeness uh, NIL, the name image likeness, likeness, likeness yeah. program. They're signing brand new athletes to their thing. They're creating a developmental center. It's just the the natural rebranding that happens when they have a little bit of a regime shift but mm-hmm. short of someone saying hey you're losing hundreds of millions of dollars i don't see why it's a big problem for them and i don't see them uh i don't see them giving up you know because for a while there they were stockpiling talent and they had they set up long-term contracts and they've now moved away from that so i i just don't see as a reason why they would turn around and do a full 180 and just give up i think it's just going to be this is part of the gradual shift but uh, no, as long as they have a TV contract to produce NXT, NXT is going to be uh, still a priority for their their production. One other question: I was in, I was thinking um, the other day when I heard that uh, Microsoft bought Activision for seventy billion dollars, and I started yeah. thinking about wrestling companies and people talk about the value. Oh yeah, of about their the company. four billion dollars that they spent right. for UFC seems like right. a small change, huh? right? Right. And I was thinking about that. I'm starting to wonder. I mean, are we undervaluing? The, the the values of these companies, be it AEW, WWE, UFC, in this current market, when you look at these type of companies willing to pay, you know, tremendous sums of money for, you know, video games are, they're different types of but content, they're but they're mainstream technolo- content. But, but I think yeah. the argument is they're buying technology. They're buying yeah. access to the metaverse. They're buying uh, in an entire generation that is connected to what they, what they produce. And they are... Re, they're shoring up their their own ability to to be dominant in the space. You know, I, I I don't know if in time this will be seen as they've spent the right amount of money, but I think everyone agreed Microsoft acquiring Activision is good for Microsoft. It's as long as it's not a poison pill, right. and. I just don't see it as Blizzard Activision has just shown too much innovation. I think the challenge is, you know, Blizzard Activision, I could list you all these different properties and all these different directions that they've gone. Wrestling still is very much in that one little, uh, you know, one little vertical of what they produce. And every time they jump out of that vertical, it doesn't always go so well. So it's like you're you're not really buying a horror movie studio you're buying a wrestling company uh and ultimately what the value of anything is is what are the media rights that people are willing to pay for it yes wrestling is undervalued versus what advertisers should spend on it could spend on it and will spend on it but not by a factor of 25 for for wwe versus activision sort of thing um but you know again you could make the argument how do you see the company of microsoft 
Do you see them as the video game producer and publisher studio? Do you see them as the operations and, and you know, uh, I use a Microsoft Surface. So are they a hardware creator? You know, what are you seeing them as? And so it's a question of, is Comcast in the business of trying to buy up the, the shows that it's creating? Is HBO Max? Is, is anyone else that's out there? What is the role of these new place, people? Are they trying to be streaming platforms? Or are they, like Netflix, trying to get into the business of creating the products themselves and owning it? Everybody's going to go in it. I do think we're seeing consolidation all over the media market, and that's not going to change for the next three years, especially if this HBO, uh, if this AT&T, Time Warner, and uh, Discovery merger goes all the way through. You know, That's another huge conglomeration change that's coming in the next year. So we could talk all night. Um, you're where are you headed this week? Where you're headed on Wednesday? Where where is Dynamite? Cleveland? Cleveland. Cleveland. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll go. I'll get to see my brother and uh, have a good time in Cleveland. And then the week after that, back to our 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 true or spiritual stomping grounds of Chicago. Uh, there's Jacksonville and the Chicago. Those are the two places we do the most shows. And so looking forward to that. But and of when, course, we're touring all the cold places in the middle of the yeah. Northeast, <laughs> the Midwest. And when's your, when's your next pay-per-view, when, if you want to plug that? Uh, March 5th. March, March 5th, 5th. Okay. from Orlando will be a good time for Revolution yeah. 2022. So mm-hmm. no, I don't think we'll have any exploding rings this time, but I'm sure we got something good up our sleeve. And are you still doing your, uh, your WrestleNomics podcast? Not at all. Not I at handed all. over the reins to that to uh, Brandon Thurston, mm-hmm. and uh, he's done an incredible job of of kind of taking it into the 21st century. So at WrestleMomics.com, you can Brandon does now YouTube like ratings updates uh, every week. He does the the show; it's fully multimedia, and he has a Patreon. So he does a great job with all of that. But uh, it was too much of a conflict of interest. Like honestly, I don't know all those people that have radio shows. And then they're also on the payroll for a company. You can't serve two masters. It's just yeah. impossible to be a, a journalist and work for a wrestling company or any other company. Cause it's just, you're always going to get criticized by what you say otherwise. Well, Chris, it was great having you on. Um, it's good talking so, with you, Ken. Say, say hi to your better half for me. I will um, say hi to your boss. I wish him the best of luck in hiring a new coach here in Jacksonville. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> What a year, right? What an inch. He's had a lot going hey, on. This- <laughs> hey, they beat the Bills. They, they beat, beat the, the Bills. Bills. <laughs> That's all I can say. But uh, thanks for coming on, and we will have you on again. And uh, stay safe and warm up there. You bet. You too. All See right, ya. Thanks.